<laughs> I think we're going to get started, since it's just done one o'clock. Um, my name's Catherine Eccles, I'm the Digital Humanities Champion here at Oxford University, and I'm also a Research Fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute. Uh, I'm a historian and now a digital humanist, um, and I want to welcome you to the first debate in our Humanities in the Digital Age series here at the Oxford Research Centre for the Humanities. Uh, we've had several successful book at lunchtime sessions and I'd like to advertise next week's that's coming up, which is in fact an app at lunchtime. Uh, next Wednesday, the 2nd, we'll be discussing Ian Pear's novel, Stroke App, Arcadia, with a panel of experts, so please do come along to that. And next Tuesday, we have another debate on digital cultural heritage. Um, looking at whether digitisation has created opportunities for <coughs> democratising cultural heritage or produced a new elitism. So come along to that on Tuesday next week. But here we're here to talk today at, uh, about whether the arts and humanities are more digital than the sciences, um, a question that was inspired by a blog post um, by Andrew Prescott, who I'm delighted to say we're hosting here today. Um, I'm going to introduce you to the members of the panel, uh, then I'm going to ask them each to speak for about five minutes, uh, giving their position, uh, following which we'll kick off the debate and open the floor to you. So let me tell you who's here today. Um, at the far end of the table here, we, uh, we're delighted to be hosting Professor Andrew Prescott, Professor of Digital Humanities at the University of Glasgow, and Theme Leader Fellow for the Digital Transformations theme uh, in the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Andrew's a former curator in the Department of Manuscripts at the British Library, where he was from 1979 to 2000, um, and coordinated a large number of really important digital projects, including Electronic Beowulf. I can never say that pr properly. Uh, he's also been a director of the Centre for Research into Freemasonry at the Humanities Research Institute at the University of Sheffield, and a professor of digital humanities at King's College London. Immediately to my right, I have Professor David de Raw, uh, Professor of E-Research at the University of Oxford, Director of the E-Research e Centre here at Oxford and Chair of our Torch Digital Humanities Steering Group. Uh, he collaborates in Oxford's Web Science Laboratory with the Oxford Internet Institute. He's a member of the Oxford Cyber Security Centre and a Strategic Advisor to the Economic and Social Research Council. His interests are focused on advancing digital scholarship involving multiple disciplines including social sciences, digital humanities and what I call the hard sciences, uh, clustered around issues such as hypertext, web, linked data, and the Internet of Things. Uh, in the middle, we have Professor Heather Viles, Head of the School of Geography uh, and the Environment, a Professor of Biogeomorphology, I've been practising that all morning, and Heritage Conservation, a Fellow and Tutor at Worcester College, Director of the Oxford Rock Breakdown Laboratory, and a member of the Landscape Dynamics Research Cluster, I have a huge envy for all of these titles. Uh, Professor Viles is a geographer with major interests in geomorphology and heritage science. Much of her research focuses on the application of science to heritage conservation, and she sits on the advisory panel of the £6.5 million AHRC jointly with the EPSRC Science and Heritage Programme. And finally, we have Professor Howard Hotson, a professor of early modern intellectual history at the University of Oxford and a fellow of St Anne's College. Um, professor Hotson has pr uh, published widely on the intellectual movements and networks of the early modern world and directs the Cultures of Knowledge uh, project uh, since 2009 with funding from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. 
Um, Cultures of Knowledge is a real exemplar digital humanities project here at Oxford, uh, now taking advantage of a new European cost networking grant to advance its march right across uh, Europe. Um, with a grant entitled Reassembling the Republic of Letters, 1500 to 1800. And Cultures of Knowledge is a really exciting um, project because it, it connects so many strands of digital humanities work right across the university. So it's a thrilling panel. I'm delighted to have everybody here. I'm delighted to have you here. And without further ado, I'm going to ask uh, Professor Andrew Prescott to take the floor. Yeah, I, I, I kick off with a certain amount of trepidation. <laughs> I feel very uneasy about the fact that my jeu d'esprit in putting in a particular headline to a blog this occasion, right? I feel it makes you more care, feel you be more careful about what you put in your blog. But the idea that, I, I must admit, I'm, first of all, the idea there should be closer contact between the arts and the sciences, and that the distinctive cultures of arts and sciences might in some ways merge, is something I've found very exciting for a long time. And I remember when I was an undergraduate, being really inspired by the um, enthusiasm with which the French historian Lucien Febvre and other historians of the Annalist School argued in the 1930s that what we needed to do was to establish laboratories for the study of history. And I also find details that challenge our preconceptions about different academic disciplines rather beguiling. For example, you thought the British Museum would be a place that was stuffed with people uh, learning about past cultures and a real seat of the humanities. But actually, most of the academic experts in the British Museum are scientists and not curators. They're material scientists dealing with the uh, care of the collections. But despite these things that maybe challenge the way we think about things, too often in discussion of the relationship between the science and the humanities, I think there's a bit of an assumption that the traffic will be mostly one way, and it'll tend to be humanities learning from science. Last week, I heard a presentation by IBM in which somebody from a senior academic figure from IBM said that digital humanities were an interesting idea because they might be a vehicle whereby the humanities would absorb more scientific method. This assumption is one way. And I, I think really there should be more two-way traffic. And my other apology, really, in introducing this is that I have to mention that horrible word ref. And it's getting to a point in the cycle where people are starting to mention ref again. And it's, it's rather worrying. Um, tedious and frightful, though I think the ref is, there is one interesting aspect to it in that it does provide us with a lot of information about the forms that academic research is taking. My colleagues on the AHRC-funded Academic Book of the Future project are doing a lot of number crunching using REF data to identify long-term trends in the forms of academic publication and communication. I've only played with the spreadsheets provided by the REF in the most superficial fashion. However, to me, it's striking how the REF goes to a great deal of trouble to allow scholarship to be submitted in any form you could think of. Performance, <coughs> artwork, database, computer code, anything. And I was also struck in looking through those spreadsheets by the way in which a sizable cohort of arts and humanities researchers are submitting scholarship in a digital form. Um, uh, I think we're really leading the way in that in the arts and humanities. 
whereas most of the outputs in science subjects are in the traditional form of peer-reviewed journal articles. So I think the ref actually indicates that humanities researchers are leading the way in producing scholarship in a digital form. So I couldn't resist in blogging about that a little and scoring a cheap point by asking whether the humanities are more digital than the sciences. Now, clearly, in many ways, this is an absurd claim, since it's precisely those peer-reviewed scientific journal articles which are creating the digital frameworks supporting these humanities outputs. Nevertheless, I'm struck by the way in which the submission of digital resources ranging from digital editions to performance artworks are starting to reshape the way in which scholars communicate with one another and pioneering new forms of scholarship. I think it's a reminder that perhaps we don't shout loudly enough about the contribution the humanities have made to modern digital environments. In much of the early work in text encoding, and Oxford was a great uh, pioneer here, arose from humanities textual scholarship. And that humanities textual scholarship really helped to shape the XML technologies that are fundamental to many aspects of the modern web. The number of humanities digital outputs in the REF shows that humanities researchers are still pushing forward the boundaries. <coughs> I think in introducing these uh, comments, I think I would draw attention to three key morals from this activity, which seems to me to represent distinctive contributions currently made by the arts and humanities. First, the arts and humanities are consistently demonstrating how research can take many forms. In particular, they demonstrate how practice can contribute to knowledge and how making can, in, in any environment, making of any sort, can be a means of generating powerful theoretical insights. The idea that making can be research is just as important in the scientific domain, of course, but arts and humanities are particularly active in establishing this position. Second, the arts and humanities have demonstrably been more effective in demonstrating how research can be expressed digitally. It's very striking how the REF has been so carefully designed to allow research to be submitted in a variety of forms, and we have to put up with that horrible expression, outputs, in order to cope with that. However, senior management in universities are often understandably risk-averse and nervous about taking advantage of the opportunities offered by the REF to submit research in unusual and innovative formats. Those are arts and humanities researchers who persuaded their deans to allow them to submit digital scholarship to the REF are true pioneers who are paving the way for different sorts of scholarship to be considered not only in the REF, but also for promotion, tenure, higher degrees and so on. It's real pioneering. Finally, what's striking is the diverse subject matter of the digital resources submitted to the web. They range from resources on Roman sculpture and the prosopography of medieval Scotland to a work on the Holocaust and digital films. Digital scholarship will always be a diminished subject if we say it's the digital studies, that it only concerns the study of the digital. By showing how digital methods can transform understanding of a huge range of subjects, 
these digital pioneers in the art of humanities are showing how digital methods can profoundly transform culture and knowledge. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thanks for inviting me to this panel to talk about one of my favorite topics. <laughs> um, I, uh, I mean, this coming up, during meetings this morning, I took the opportunity to ask everyone in my meetings what the answer to the question was. And um, so some of them in the room. Uh, answers vary from the question doesn't make sense um, to how do you quantify digital, which I quite like, because it's kind of how do you measure numbers? Um, to um, arts, libraries, and sciences are, and now I paraphrase, not so great. Uh, so uh, I actually am also start by, by, by challenging the question. In a way, this is all about me finding out the question I can answer yes to. So, um, are the humanities more digital than the sciences? I do not want to get into uh, a definitional sort of black hole, what we mean by any of those things. Um, the question I can easily answer yes to is, do different research areas use digital methods to different extents? Yes. And the reason I know that is because the e-research center uh, has a remit to do collaborative research across all divisions of the university. So as you walk the corridors of the centre, you see people using digital methods to different extents in, in different areas. Um, I, I, I like the um, references to laboratories because in a way the centre is, is, is a laboratory. Um, Andrew mentioned the laboratory for the study of history. Um, I'm, I'm envious that the Heather has a, a, a rock breakdown laboratory because I'm a computational musicology group. <laughs> I'd love to do rock breakdown and then jazz breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's kind of a, a, a laboratory. Um, our challenge, and those of you who know this institution well will recognise this, but it transcends Oxford clearly, is, is working across <coughs> the many different disciplinary or even physical walls. Uh, and I don't, I don't say that. Differently. I do wonder quite hard sometimes why do we build walls? So walls in, in this university have been around for a very long time. <laughs> and uh, we build walls to keep things out and to keep things in and build a sort of safe space. So discipline sort of create a place where that is the place where that is the ivory tower where we do that work. If you're outside our walls, then you're not doing this stuff. <laughs> and, and you only come in if you're, if you're doing this stuff very, very well. And my, my challenge has been, uh, and with many other multidisciplinary initiatives across the university to, to work across those walls, which is sometimes um, obviously very challenging, but we've, we've, we've done very well. So we um, do have interactions, collaborative projects with very many departments across the university, less so medical sciences and sort of up the hill. Um, it's interesting to look at how I normally present that. I'm presenting the centre. Uh, because I talk about the digital humanities activities because that, that it, humanities is so pervasive and so strong in this institution um, all over that the, the digital humanities network is an, is an amazing thing. We meet in this room once a term and have a sort of two hour meeting which just buzzes with the amount of stuff that's going on. It's fantastic. Um, the other common thread with our intersections across the university, interestingly, also I would suggest is digitally enabled, but it's about people. It's about society, and it's about citizens at scale. Okay? So just as much as you could think, oh, let's measure how digital things are, yeah. how many computers do they use, how much memory do they have, how, how big is their data, um, we're just as interested in um, how many people are engaged with this, what are they doing, what is their role. The space that we're doing research in now is multidisciplinary <coughs> research. 
is where large numbers of people come together with large amounts of digital. And digital enables that. It's one of the affordances of digital, that citizens are empowered to engage with the digital world. So big data is something that's collected by the in interactions between humans and the digital world. <coughs> big data is something that's analyzed, for example, in citizen science uh, by citizens uh, working in the digital world. So, so it's very much that space of people and digital. It isn't just about technology at all. Uh, so a great example of that would be something like Zooniverse, the citizen science platforms that have been developed so successfully in, in, in Oxford, starting with Galaxy Zoo with 165,000 citizens to, to the Zooniverse platform today with, with over a million people engaged with new projects, including humanities projects being released every few <coughs> weeks. And now you can log in and create your own projects. So empowerment through digital of the citizens to create entirely new research um, activities. What we have there is, is new research methods, uh, uh, empowerment at scale, new social processes. Uh, we also study that process. We study these new forms of scholarship. Um, and we borrow methods across disciplines. So for example, uh, there's work going on analyzing, studying uh, how you build a quote, social machine like Zooniverse, but using methods from humanities, looking at the stories of social machines, <coughs> using techniques of prosopography. Segalin and Pip have involved in this work. So there's a lovely intersection between humanities, humanities methods being taken across uh, and being used in the study of scholarship in, in, in another domains entirely. So coming back to the question, what can I say yes to? Do scientists have something to learn from digital humanities? <coughs> do Andrew? Yes. Um, do humanists have something to learn from digital science? Yes. Gosh, this is very symmetrical, isn't it? Um, is there an asymmetry? I think that the title of this debate is really pushing at some asymmetry. Um, uh, so I try to think hard about this. So are some scientists overly dismissive of humanities? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, because I live in this, this space, this sometimes a space where I see all these, these, these tensions, and I see things being lobbed in both directions, and many other directions. Uh, assertions like people should do history research in their spare time. Okay. I'm not telling you said that. Um, sometimes to the extent that, that some of our science colleagues will sort of glory in their ignorance and celebrate the, the neglect of humanities because STEM is what matters, right? Um, and not everyone is like that. Um, I would suggest that good scientists are not like that. Uh, interestingly, just on the ref point, Andrew, there's a great debate going on at the moment in computer science as to whether the computer science returned papers have to include one sole authored paper to prevent people gaming the system. So that's just borrowing from humanities there for the wrong reasons. Um, I've worked in social science. I've been responsible for the uh, national program digital social research for ESRC, and been to very many events and been responsible for workshops where social scientists and, and computer scientists come together. And I think what I've learned from that, from that, and from the digital humanities world is that actually. Social scientists kind of have a bigger picture of scholarship and that humanists have a bigger picture still, maybe a longer picture. Um, I think scientists have learned now that systems are really complicated um, and, and the scientific tendency is to simplify the system so you can provide um, some, some concrete answers. Humanists already know the systems are very complicated. Uh, and uh, if I want to look at something going in the other direction, I, I would accuse humanists of not being able to think big in the way that scientists can think big. So, so the scientists can think of grand challenges that can work at scale. And I've sometimes been frustrated where there have been opportunities for humanities to think big, but it, it isn't the instinct, which is something we can talk about. Mm. 
But in social science and in humanities, we study the process of scholarship as, as uh, Andrew alludes to the process. And I think in science, the scientific method is kind of a given and you can't challenge that. And when you step outside science, you, 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 you can be critical of the method. Um, a great example is about reproducibility, which is a very hot topic. And I've done this social experiment. I can talk to a real scientist and say, do you believe in reproducibility? And it's not that all the hands go up, hands go straight up. Of course, everyone believes in reproducibility. I've asked that to a group of social scientists. Some hands go up tentatively. Okay. Perhaps I should try it in this room. And the reason is that I suggest that um, social scientists and humanists perhaps know that reproducibility is, is basically a myth. It's a conflation of a whole load of different things to do with um, repeatability, reusability, repurposability. Lots of words beginning with R. I can provide those another day. Um, and it's that critical thinking and it's that challenge, which sometimes it feels that like I'm not allowed to, to say in science. Um, on the other hand, <coughs> scientists would say, do human, humanists even articulate the methods that they're using? Which is something else we could discuss. I, in conclusion, often um, sort of simplified my experience in this uncomfortable intersection space by saying there are some people who if you give them a problem, they'll simplify it to give you an answer. Computer scientists are really good at this. Um, and they're solutionizers. And then there are other people who give them a problem, they'll make it more complicated. Social scientists and humanists are very good at this. Um, and they're problematizers. And I've said that quite often. And uh, so in discussion with, with Pip, who runs the Center for Digital Scholarship in the Body, Pip has a more nuanced take on this, which I think is really useful for this panel. Uh, so people don't see uh, I should say, each of social scientists and computer scientists accuse each other of not overlapping in rigor. <laughs> people don't see the rigor of science because they're not, they need more training to see it. People don't see the rigor of humanities um, because they need more training to see it. So it comes back to the training, the fact we are all trained in these isolated places. Um, uh, we've got food so far without mentioning C.P. Snow, so perhaps I shouldn't be the person who introduces that. But there's that concern about what we're training people in, and also the Centre for Digital Scholarship is in a good position to address this. Um, so perhaps the, 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 the damaging legacy of these, this sort of isolation of the different disciplines um, is, is exactly what we've just discussed, and that the answer to this is, is digital. One of the answers is digital. Digital is a way of, of crossing those rules. People need to know what's possible with digital, as, as we've said. I think that's the way of crossing the boundaries, crossing the walls. Um, it's a way of um, doing things that none of us necessarily could have done before in isolation. And I don't know if I want to introduce this word, but perhaps we should just accept that those disciplines, those distinctions like humanities and sciences are historical things, legacies, and that we should rethink, and maybe we should be thinking post-disciplinary. Thank you. Um, as a naive geographer, I'm neither really strictly humanities in any way, and nor, nor am I often seen as a scientist, although I do have a science background. But I'd like to imagine this in a bit of a different way. I'd like us to imagine this as, first of all, a, a spectrum. So as has been clearly established here, on the one end you've got a community of, of humanists, on the other you've got a community of, of scientists. And I'd like us to imagine that digital is one centering point, so that is one uh, meeting point. And before we sort of go very far with this, I'd just also like to make the, the point that these two communities on either end of this spectrum are, are not simple 
things with lots of shared values. They are very diffuse. There are, there are huge differences. And just as humanists feel uncomfortable about um, being attacked by scientists, so scientists feel very uncomfortable being pigeonholed. Um, and the main pigeonholing that happens with scientists is science as technicians. So science as providing widgets or data or digital things. Now, that's not wrong entirely, so that is what some science does. And scientists like to play up to that as well. So I brought my widgets with me. Um, I'm never happier than when I've got a, a bit of equipment. Um, so this is where I get digital data. These are eye buttons, these ones sense for temperature and relative humidity. And we can do amazing things with these um, and pepper them around the place and collect lots of, lots of data. Um, but the point I want to make is that that, of course, is not all that science does. And science is as rich, challenging, as complex as, as humanities uh, are as well. So we've got this spectrum, we've got this meeting point in the middle. I'd also make the case that there's another axis uh, here. We might think of it as going north-south if we're very geographical like, like I am. Um, on this, we have perhaps at one end, we have uh, professional communities, policy makers, governments, uh, whatever. <coughs> And at the other end of this spectrum, we have publics. We have people, students, uh, anything, anybody that might we might want to engage in, in different ways. And clearly, these groups are also very, very diverse. But digital also, um, as people have said, provides us an excellent meeting point and a platform for us as scientists, etc., to, uh, to, to mediate these negotiations. Um, but the key point, then, is what is this central point like? We might call it digital. But what actually happens there? Because that's crucial. And the way I'd like to conceptualise it, again, being a naive geographer, is at the moment it's a bit like a bus stop. Right? You imagine the busy bus stops in anywhere in central Oxford. You've got a whole range of people there. They're all on their digital devices. They're all just hanging around. They're, they're all waiting for something, but they're not really interacting uh, very much. And what I'd like us to think about is how we reconvene that space into something that's far more engaging and interactive. And as a, as a child of the, of the 1970s, I'd like us to imagine that where we should be going with digital is digital as glitter ball. Right? <laughs> you imagine you're back in a 1970s disco, there's this wonderful glitter ball going up there, we're all captivated by it, it throws us in interesting lights, and, and we hopefully can get together. So we love the analogies. How, how are we doing that? What's, what's going on at the moment? Um, one of my roles is that I'm co-director of the rather clumsily named Centre for Doctoral Training called CHAR, uh, which is Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology. And that's a, um, a, an inter-university centre, a distributed centre if that means anything, shared between UCL, uh, Brighton and Oxford. Uh, funded by EPSRC, so science funded, but with the goal of training 60 PhD students over an eight year period. And out of those, some 12 to 15 are coming to Oxford over the course of that eight years. And these people are transferring the bus stop into the glitter ball, I would, I would argue. And, and I just want to give you one example of that. Um, so one of the second cohort of students is a chemist uh, from Bath. He's currently in the first year of this programme, and he's been jointly supervised by David Howell from the Bodleian Library, Head of Heritage Science, Hyperspectral Imaging, and expert on many other uh, techniques. 
But this guy's also being supervised by me as a geographer with interests in bricks, mortar and stone. And he's also being supervised by Melissa Terrace from UCL, who is a digital humanities uh, specialist as well. So what this student is really embarking on <coughs> is a practical training in how you do link all these four components. Because each CR student, as well as having a rather intimidating cohort of academic supervisors, also has an industrial supervisor and a heritage supervisor. So somebody who is concerned about objects or some form of heritage, and then the industrial supervisor is somebody who develops widgets or uh, uh, creates software or, or something like that. And I think the journey that we're embarking on as supervisors and students as part of CIHAR um, is really intriguing because it's pointing out what you need in, a, in order to be able to really negotiate uh, these, these spaces. And I think there are, there are clearly many challenges and those have already been, been perhaps uh, pointed out. So to summarise then, I haven't answered the question, but that's because I'm an <coughs> academic and I never do that. Also, as head of department, you never answer a straight question, <laughs> especially when it's, can I have some money uh, for something? So I think my argument would be that digital provides us with an unparalleled opportunity to reimagine the relationship between humanities and sciences, but more important, reimagine uh, that between academics, professionals uh, and the public. Thank you. Thank you. An array of images. I don't know whether I'm on a bus or in a disco. <laughs> yeah, if I could pull that up here. Um, uh, last time I was in a um, torch panel, it was entitled Humanities and Sciences, Two Cultures or a Shared Enterprise. And I argued as best I could that these two enterprises were in, indeed shared. So it's slightly awkward to be um, forced to choose in this case. Um, and I'd like to begin by um, discussing a couple of reasons, obvious reasons, or rather important reasons, why a lot of humanists would say um, that the humanities are intrinsically less digital than the sciences, and then perhaps tack around to the other side. Three, uh, three reasons in particular. Okay, one is that the humanists' unease with, with a technology based on noughts and ones, simple yeses and noes. We, think of the questions that we ask as too subtle and complicated to admit of such simple answers. So I think this is part of the sort of deep-seated uh, discomfort in, in the human, humanistic community about going digital. Now, of course, it's true that lots and lots of ones and zeros can be combined to answer very complex questions. But the problem is that humanists don't understand either the technology which stores all these noughts and ones or the algorithms that are needed to process them. And we can't understand these things without thoroughly re-educating ourselves. Um, and for this, we have little time inclination or perhaps aptitude. So uh, we can simplify things if we're unhappy with that, or we can go to the complicated end, but that, that requires understanding a technology that, that we're not particularly well uh, suited to, to grasping. And moreover, many digital tools are designed to extract generalizations from big data. And we think of generalizations as the business of the social sciences, that huma humanities are about unique individual instances, not general rules. The data we care about is very often intrinsically small, sometimes minute. And this is the idea that I'd like to develop uh, a little bit further. Um, I don't really want to argue that these objections are valid or equally valid for all branches of the humanities, but I would like to begin 
at least for the purposes of argument, by conceding that the humanities focus primarily on the close uh, inspection of small data relating to unique instances. And what I'd like to argue is that this still leaves enormous opportunities for digital technology to transform traditional humanistic scholarship, but we're not going to seize those opportunities by aping the sciences we need to develop digital strategies which suit our own needs. <coughs> I think it's pretty obvious uh, if we take a closer look at how scholarly methods typically work. We're ultimately interested in large-scale developments, the rise and decline of dynasties, states, empires, artistic movements, musical styles, scientific worldviews, or whatever you, uh, you're particularly interested in. But we don't believe that we can understand these things very well in terms of sweeping social scientific generalizations or fancy computer algorithms. Instead, our humanistic understanding of these large-scale developments um, is ultimately dependent upon the collection and study of immense bodies of often quite minute evidence. Tiny scraps of evidence from which we reconstruct a biography, for, exa for example, the variations between copies of a legal charter or a musical score, the glacial change in language use, and so on and so forth. Now, the thing is that each of these minutiae is virtually meaningless on its own. One tiny scrap of evidence only becomes meaningful when related to other minutiae. So our field of study must ultimately consist of vast bodies of minute pieces of evidence which must be assembled, interlinked together in all kinds of ways in order to become meaningful. The collection and interlinking of this evidence is an enormous task and therefore a collaborative and cumulative one. Scholarship pro uh, progresses most typically when someone re-examines an established view in the light of new evidence. Part of the reason that scholarship is so slow and painstaking is that the scholar must continuously reconstruct the paper trail of evidence underlying every assertion that he or she makes. And the more specialized the research, the more slow and painstaking this reconstruction must be, since it can often only be conducted in a very small number of highly uh, uh, specialized archives, libraries, research institutes. Now, there's no doubt that print has transformed our capacity to collaborate in this way, and it did so in the period I study, the 16th and 17th into the 18th centuries. But although great improvement on script, print remains a very cumbersome medium in several crucial and I think fairly obvious respects. It's not easy to move instantly from one minute piece of evidence to another, at least not if they are published in different highly specialized books or journals. It's difficult to add additional evidence to bodies of information which have already been published in print. It's therefore difficult to build on what has been accomplished already, and perhaps even more importantly, not all of the evidence that we study is textual and therefore easily conveyed through the medium of print. For, for generations, historians in particular have neglected material and visual evidence, for instance, because it's not readily reproducible in print, and the same goes for what might, one might describe as multi-dimensional material, that is to say, evidence which must be experienced either in time or in three dimensions. And I'll show you some of that in a moment. Moreover, print media is very expensive to produce, to reproduce, to distribute, and to store, 
meaning that print resources are by their very nature, uh, uh, cannot be made universally accessible. Now, the Digital Research Project, and here I have a, a slide. Um, the Digital Research Project that I'm deeply entangled with is clearly devoted to seizing the opportunity provided by digital technology to support our traditional working methods, not to transform the methods, but to support traditional working method methods much more uh, effectively and efficiently than print can do. It aims to construct a digital framework within which scholars, archivists, and librarians can collaborate in radically multilateral fashion on the task of reassembling the documentation needed to understand the Res Publica Literaria, the Republic of Letters, that is to say, the transnational imagined community uh, uh, responsible for many of the intellectual breakthroughs of the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, which inaugurated uh, modern Europe. It's predicated on the expectation that when people start publishing their data in standardized formats on standardized technology, this will allow them to build directly on what others have done and the results could be transformational. Instead of having to go through that laborious process of reconstructing the paper train every time you want to make an incremental contribution to knowledge, you can simply layer that increment on top of what's been uh, achieved already. Now, I've spoken about this um, project often enough in Oxford that I thought I would shift my focus here and try to stress that this same process of uh, transformation is applicable not only to research, but also to teaching in many humanistic disciplines uh, for basically the same reason. At the moment, each specialist in each in institution must laboriously assemble their curriculum from scratch. Students must either follow in the path of a textbook or spend vast amounts of time assembling source material on which more advanced study is based. But it's possible to envisage clearinghouses where whole thematic interest groups pool their best material, the best material for study, their best pedagogical ideas for in exposing students to that material, and assemble from this common pool their own course syllabi, drawing from, a, uh, drawing from but also contributing to this common resource at every scale from a single link or annotation to major new topics or pathways through the material. Moreover, I think this will allow students greatly enhanced access to a richer variety of source material, to far richer multimedia experience, and a far easier transition between introductory stud study and cutting edge uh, research. So instead of talking about research, I'd like to show you very briefly the sort of material I was assembling yesterday when I realized I needed to break off and um, and pull together some thoughts uh, for, this, for this presentation. And in doing so, this is just something which uh, Catherine and I, with um, colleagues from the Ashmolean and the Muse Museum of History of Science, are pulling together uh, as a new way of teaching uh, the history of 17th century science, the scientific revolution, from a base in Oxford, an institution which participated in that revolution and is full of buildings, of sites, of, uh, of collections of materials which, which illustrate broad European themes from a distinctive point of view. So this is just um, a very quick impression of the vast range of different kinds of sources which we should be using to teach this particular subject to 
uh, our students, but we can only do, do so through the, through, the, through the digital medium. And particularly what I was working on yesterday was collecting um, uh, an important topic in um, the scientific revolution, and one, of course, where the Ashmolean Museum gives us a particularly a unique vantage point on it. So here, very briefly, are, is a, is a, is a whistle-stop tour of the kinds of evidence that we want to be assembling <coughs> and allowing students uh, the capacity to navigate much more swiftly and much more efficiently than ever before. Maps of 17th century Oxford, for instance, necessary in order to put all these uh, developments in, 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 in a geographical context, if you will. The actual built infrastructure, the built environment itself, in this case, what's now known as the Museum of the History of Science, but is in fact the original purpose-built building of the Ashmolean, opened in 1683. Contemporary representations of that building, in this case from the unfamiliar perspective of basically the Sheldonian. Portraits of the collectors themselves, very revealing, I think, contrast between John Trudeskant, the younger, on the one hand, with his hand on the spade, and Elias Ashmole with his hand on his learned, uh, his learned volume. Printed books, in this case, the Museum Trudescantianum, the uh, originally published catalog of the rarities preserved in the Trudescant collection before it was moved, uh, moved to Oxford. Examples of the artifacts, uh, which um, were part of that original bequest to the university, and we're, we're generating 3D visualizations so students can explore these in, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in a really rich and informative way. Examples of the kind of natural historical specimens which were actually uh, collected in uh, the collection as well, as well as scientific instruments, which of course is what the old Ashmolean houses primarily today. Archaeological remains. This skull with hundreds of other bones was dug up when they, uh, when they uh, created the new seminar rooms under Broad Street, evidence that um, anatomical dissections were actually taking place in the old Ashmolean in the late 17th and early 18th century. Manuscripts. Here we have the statutes and rules for the Ashmolean Museum as laid down by Ashmol uh, at the outset. Further archaeological remains which show us that these rules were not actually put into practice. Here you have the, a fragment of a starfish and a, and a fragment of a, of a very uh, intricate piece of sculpture, both, both uh, confirming what contemporary records show that people were allowed uh, to get their hands on this material, and it was very, very rapidly ground down. Um, you have a... Um, you have a clay marble suggesting that children were playing in there. You have the vast quantity of cherry uh, stones suggesting that people were also having their lunch in there. Um, another thing dug up just outside the Ashmolean, a piece of chemical apparatus from the 17th century. We also need uh, to refer to contemporary um, illustrations of what chemical laboratories uh, looked like. This is uh, from exactly the same date, 1683. Uh, 1683, only in Altdorf um, in Germany, um, and then uh, comparison with other institutions elsewhere. Here is the Museum Vormianum, uh, slightly earlier uh, museum in Copenhagen, one of the most intriguing illustrations of what a cabinet of curiosities looked like in the 17th century. So we, we're constructing a platform on which we can bring together 
a much greater variety of source material that we've ever been able to use for teaching before. And what the, one of the things that most intrigues me is the idea that if we can populate such a platform with the material that we have here in Oxford, <coughs> well, uh, the natural extension would be to create platforms which can be collaboratively populated by other institutions elsewhere with equally wonderful resources, albeit looking at this transformation of, of scientific learning from a different perspective. Here, the Museo Galileo in, Flo in Florence, which is already doing this kind of thing, including in the digital domain and in a really um, extraordinary way. Here, the Anatomy, Anatomy Theatre of Padua, the great centre of medical learning in the 16th and 17th century. Here, you've got the botanical, famous botanical garden in Leiden, which was roughly um, contemporaneous with the physic garden here in Oxford. Here, you've got Tycho Brahe's fabulous observatory in the island of, of Fen, then in, uh, in uh, Denmark, now in Sweden. Uh, here, you have what uh, a great German collection looked like um, about half a century into the 18th century, um, and, and uh, uh, so one can imagine um, platforms being created which can then be populated by unique uh, perspectives on this uh, unique transformational <coughs> development from various parts of, of Europe, and, and, and moving beyond the MOOC, the massive online uh, open uh, open access course to something uh, which I would see as much better, not created around one great professor in a privileged institution, but bringing together resources, expertise, pedagogical experience, wherever it might be found into something, sorry, something more like a collaboratively curated open online course. So I wanted to close with this image uh, taken from um, Andrew's lecture in St. Anne's uh, a year and a few days ago, where he was talking about digital transformations. And the takeaway point, or at least the point that I took away from it, was the notion that um, digital transformation of humanistic scholarship is something which has scarcely begun, but we're beginning to see what it might look like. I think this is exactly right, um, that the real transformations are still to be there in, in, in the future. and. At least a lot of, of, of uh, digital scholarship and teaching in the humanities is going to be transformed not by trying to ape what's going on in the sciences, but by, using, by working out how to use this technology in ways that suits our methods, that suits our problems, and, uh, and um, complementing rather than imitating what's going on in the, in, the, in the sciences. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Gosh, more agreement, actually, than I <laughs> could have thought possible. Um, I, I, and I, th I think it's really striking that both Dave and Heather um, imagined for us a sort of transdisciplinary world where, um, as you said, Dave, the answer is digital. And, and I think Heather was describing a pivot point of digital um, where we might all start to find ourselves sort of drawn towards the magnet in the middle, and that might make collaboration, not only um, more possible, but more natural to all of us. And I think both Andrew and Howard uh, drew attention to the creativity in the humanities, the different ways that we imagine both our research outputs and our, our teaching outputs, our teaching objects and, um, and texts and, and other potential forms of um, uh, media, I suppose. And that we might actually be able to use that creativity to provide meeting places for humanities and science students. 
um, which again I think would achieve this sort of transdisciplinary future that both Dave and Heather imagined. But that's enough from me. I think it's really important that we have a real debate now and get some questions from the audience. Um, so if anyone has some burning comments, questions, provocations, please make yourself known. I'm really sorry we're going to have to call it to close because we've been hustled out of the room, but thank you so much for all those fantastic questions. Thank you.